Knowing there's something like 8 billion people on Earth right now, it's likely that a random occurrence that it's as unlikely as 1 in 8 billion is going to happen to somebody every day. So you can see how the statistics works to fool us if we're not very careful about how we assess the probabilities beforehand. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Produced by Soapbox Media. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. On this episode, I'm continuing my investigation of cognitive biases. Uh, I've had a couple of interviews on this topic, and I wanted to get into uh, a little bit more on exploring the types of cognitive bias that are out there and how to recognize them. If any of you have been following the controversy over social media uh, regarding confirmation bias that, that leads us to believe in dodgy sources when they agree with our preconceived notions, uh, but to hold other opinions to a much higher standard of evidence than we do for those that are in our camp, so to speak. That's a common one. In this episode, I'm going to explore a few of the lesser known types of cognitive bias that could be impacting your judgment. If you had a chance to listen to my interview with Nobel laureate Dr. Daniel Kahneman, you'd understand that our brains do not naturally follow the formal laws of logic and inference. We make shortcuts when we think. And these are fine for everyday life. We, we can make these shortcuts and make uh, leaps of intuition, but they're not quite uh, correct. We, we make approximations because they're easy and they, um, they reflect our experiences. But if you go to the formal laws of logic and, and, and probability and inference, you'll find that our brains just don't work that way. And this was how Dr. Kahneman uh, won his Nobel Prize in recognizing this fact and, and, and researching it and showing it um, scientifically. In a more recent interview, uh, happiness guru Valerie Alexander pointed out that we need to shine a light on all of these biases to recognize their impacts on our mental processes and to address them and to not let uh, nefarious people exploit them and to be more successful in making judgments. And, and bringing rationality to public policy requires that we recognize these biases for what they are. So this episode of my crash course on how to recognize some of the more insidious biases and eliminate them in our quest for the ultimate in Vulcan rationality. If you like what you're hearing, please press like on your podcast app. Maybe leave a comment or a review. I would love to, to see reviews, even post them on our Facebook group, The Rational View. So I'm going to start off with survivor bias. I've heard people say, we never wore seatbelts when we were young and, and we were fine. We, we got by just fine. Kids these days are have too much safety. Uh, we carried our babies in our laps in our cars and, and they all survived. Well, they didn't all survive. And this is what survivorship bias means. If you survived the risks, you're here to talk about them and say that, no, they didn't hurt us. But if you didn't survive, you can't say anything. This is kind of a, uh, you're selecting out the failures and you don't get a full sample if you, if the, the people that didn't survive can't talk. So yes, we did survive, 
Um, but there were some that weren't so lucky and you need to count these things to get a good feel for whether the safety uh, precautions that we didn't take had an impact. And you'll find in often cases that they did have some impact and that a lot of people did die because they weren't wearing seatbelts. Uh, other examples of this are, are pretty cool. Think about professional poker players. Uh, most professional poker players believe in beginner's luck. And why is this? Think about it. How do you become a professional poker player? You go to a casino and you win a lot of money playing poker when you're a beginner. If you don't win a lot of money when you're a beginner, you probably don't consider becoming a professional poker player. So professional poker players believe in beginner's luck because that's how they got into the sport. It's a survivorship bias. Think about stockbrokers. Um, most studies show that using the advice of a stockbroker is the same as, as throwing darts at a dartboard to pick stocks. Yet these people are very confident in their abilities. Why are the ones that are in the business very confident in their abilities? Assuming it's just blind luck picking stocks. The ones that were lucky stayed in the business, got bigger and bigger portfolios. There's a lot of people in this funnel. And, and if half of them are winners and half of them are losers, you start filtering down till you get to the one guy at the top that's been lucky his whole career. And he's lauded as this, this great stockbroker person and wins millions of dollars in, in, in people investing in them. And then they all go broke and you find out that it's survivorship bias. Another uh, cool example of survivorship bias is people saying they don't make things like they used to. Look at look at these 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 antique things that have lasted for so long. Uh, you know, wow, these are these are built so they used to build things so good back then. But the things that they didn't build to survive didn't survive. So you can't. Obviously, we have this survivorship bias in antiques and looking at, at old things that have survived till now. These are the ones that they built well. So you, you need to make sure that when you're taking a, a sample, that you take the full sample that you started with and not the sample that you ended with as, as your sample set to test a hypothesis. Now, the prototypical example of survivorship bias is one I love comes from statistician Abraham Wald at Columbia University who conducted research on World War II bomber planes. And you may have seen this meme going around uh, on the internet. Uh, his job was to recommend places for reinforcement. So his team reviewed the data from all the bombers that returned from missions in World War II and identified the locations in which they underwent the most fire. So where are all the bullet holes? Where are they getting hit? Um, but rather than recommend those locations as places for reinforcement, he recognized that this was a form of survivorship bias. The places that the planes didn't, that return didn't have bullet holes meant that those planes didn't return. So, you know, over the gas tanks and these things, none of the planes that came back had bullet holes in the gas tanks. Why is that? Because those planes didn't return. So Wald noted those locations were actually spots uh, that needed to be uh, reinforced. The, the, the planes that, you know, assuming that the bullet holes were relatively random uh, on, uh, on the initial hits, the planes that didn't return had, had, had to have been hit in these other places. 
As a result, they made more effective predictions and saved many lives. So recognizing bias saves lives. Another bias I want to touch on is the hindsight bias. And many of us uh, have this. It's the uh, I knew it all along bias. This is the one where we believe the universe is more predictable than it is. It's easy to find a justification for why something happened after the fact. Our minds are wired to find patterns and justifications and, and build a meaningful story. It's, it's, it's difficult for us to deal with the possibility that an event was somewhat random or unpredictable. A lot of people after the U.S. elections, in hindsight, I should have known Donald Trump would beat Hillary Clinton. You hear this a lot, but before the election, nobody was saying that. Everyone was convinced Hillary Clinton was going to win. If you ask people in hindsight what their beliefs are, their answers will change. And this has been shown in studies that uh, before the fact, things are, are, are much more uncertain than after the fact. You have a lot of people saying they knew it. And this is why they knew it, or they should have known it. And this is why they should have known it. There are huge economies of pundits on the news, uh, talking heads that, that have sprung up in every arena of human endeavor to exploit this bias uh, and to say why we should have known something or, or what were the factors that contributed to these things. And these talking heads will go back and forth about why we should have known that this was going to happen or that was going to happen. So, Hindsight bias can lead to overconfidence in your ability to predict what's going to happen because you always see reasons for things after the fact, but maybe before the fact, it's not so obvious what's going to happen. So this can lead to poor decision-making and affect how you assign blame for events, for example, if you believe other people should have known what, what was going to happen. Another example of hindsight bias is believing that your sporting victory uh, uh, that might be attributable to chance was instead due to your superior skill in an evenly matched game. And this, if you, you think of um, other areas of endeavor, like uh, religion, for example, this is one reason that people believe in, in vaguely worded prophecies and that they can post hoc uh, say that, oh, this prophecy was about this event. Whereas, you know, before the fact, they're so vague that they could apply to anything. You, you can, interpret a sufficiently vague prophecy to match uh, the actual circumstances after an event in many cases, but beforehand, nobody would have made that connection or prediction. So they're useless before the fact, and after the fact, they make you feel good that your religion has done these wonderful predictions, or post hoc predictions, I guess. Another interesting cognitive bias that, that we find in the field of economics and uh, stockbrokers especially are aware of this uh, is loss aversion bias. And this is a tendency for people to avoid losses while um, like more strongly than achieving gains. It's better to avoid a loss than achieve an equivalent gain, if that makes sense. Broadly speaking, people feel pain from losses much more acutely than they feel pleasure from gains of, of the same size. So loss aversion uh, create, causes people to make bad financial decisions. They often need an extra significant incentive to take financial risks that might result in a loss. And it also makes people um, sell their stocks on a loss 
and and miss the the bounce back. For example, if if the stock market crashes, people sell low and and buy high rather than holding on and getting the bounce back, and you end up have fewer losses that way. So uh, I don't want to go into too much detail on this, but this bias is also why people tend to buy more insurance than they need. Um, I, I read a book many years ago called The Wealthy Barber, uh, which which made this point pretty well for me in that the insurance market is a, is a profit-making business. The people that provide insurance are not losing money on, pro- on providing insurance. So buying insurance is a loser's game. You will not make back your money in the long run, statistically speaking. Insurance makes a profit for the insurance sellers, not the insurance buyers. Insurance is there to protect you against things against rare events that you can't afford to take. Um, Therefore, you're never, almost never getting good odds on purchasing insurance. You're betting against yourself. You're betting for your situation to negatively beat the odds by buying insurance. In the long run, you will lose money. Um, the The points where it does make sense to buy insurance is if you couldn't afford something if it happened and you must uh, then buy the insurance and you want to buy the insurance to protect yourself in those cases. I think socioeconomic factors also play an essential role in one's um, appreciation of loss aversion or one's uh, how much one, how averse one is to loss with, with, you know, your social hierarchy position, providing a good indicator of your level of loss aversion, shall we say. Um, People in powerful positions in a hierarchy or with lots of of money are less loss averse because they're in a better position to absorb the consequences. Uh, And this is also for, for those of you who are interested in nuclear power, which is another one of my focus areas in this podcast, uh, this is thought to be a contributing factor regarding risk perceptions around nuclear power. We know that there's a big um, difference between um, white male acceptance of nuclear power and just about everybody else. And why is that? We know it's there. What describes it? Perhaps this social hierarchy where the white males are typically uh, better off than the minorities or the female uh, due to various factors. And the implied risks uh, are more difficult for less advantaged groups to, um, to, to feel comfortable with, shall we say. So moving on. I, I'm interested in uh, gambling and statistics of gambling because it's one way where all of these biases can be can have real financial impacts on people. And so the next one is called the gambler's fallacy. And the gambler's fallacy basically is uh, the idea that luck runs in streaks. That in a random process, we know we know that a random process is defined as each subsequent event is unaffected by the events before it. So if you have a fair coin that has turned up heads five times in a row, the odds of the next one turning up heads is still 50-50. That's the definition of a random process. However, when you ask people to bet on what's going to happen next, you'll often get people saying it has to be tails. Tails is due. In a random process, the universe isn't keeping score. There is no history 
affecting the next outcome. The next outcome is independent of all the previous outcomes. Some people seem to believe that over the long term, the number of heads and tails tends to be equal. But that's just not true. The universe isn't keeping score. Over the long term, the proportion, the relative proportion of heads to tails on a, on a random coin flip tends to 50-50. Because, um, but the number, the absolute number of heads and tails can diverge and get the discrepancy between heads and tails can get larger and larger over time. And in fact, it's expected to get larger and larger. But as a fraction of the total number of head flips, it gets closer and closer to 50-50. And that's just how the math works. There is no law of averages that says that if you have an overabundance of heads, that it should be followed by an overabundance of tails. That's just not true. And this is how people lose a lot of money gambling. Once heads has a lead in the total number, the most probable outcome is that that lead will remain. And this is this is um, a fallacy that is, is very widespread, and people can make a lot of money off of it if they exploit others' uh, others' uh, predisposition towards it. On the other side of the fallacy are the many folks who believe that luck runs in streaks. This is especially common in casinos as well. Uh, I've, I've encountered it playing blackjack. You, you see people that believe they, they have a cold dealer or they have a hot hand. And typically speaking, the reason that this belief emerges is, is a quirk of how the mind works. And this is how we misremember things uh, as opposed to how we experience them. Uh, we typically don't remember the hours of sitting at a blackjack table, uh, winning and losing and winning and losing, and just kind of staying even. Our minds are tickled by those rare events when a highly improbable run of repeated wins or losses results in a significant change in our finances and our chip stacks. These are the things that we remember. So we remember the streaks, even though they're very rare and they're statistically improbable and and they don't happen often. That's what we remember. And so we think that's a luck, that's a streak of luck. Um these these are expected to happen. As my guest, Dr. Daniel Kahneman, taught us, our minds just don't naturally understand these rules of statistic and logic and probability. And we need to teach ourselves not to be fooled by the appearance of a pattern. Our brains are built to detect patterns, it's a survival instinct to detect patterns and use this knowledge to prevent bad things from happening. We can see faces in random rock formations. We can see conspiracies in random events. We see things that aren't there and we give a lot of money to casinos because of it. Rows and rows of people believe that they can beat the slot machines that are programmed to give back only 95% of the money that's put into them over the long run. Now, similar to the gambler's fallacy is the Texas sharpshooter fallacy. And a really cool name. <clears throat> it's also called the clustering illusion. And it takes his name from the metaphor for a gunman who shoots uh, at the side of a barn, randomly shooting bullets in the side of a barn. And later, only later, draws a cluster around the points that were hit. So, you know, if you see there's a cluster over here, I'm going to draw a bullseye over here. And then someone else comes along and looks at it. Says, oh, wow, that's a very accurate pattern of shooting there, Mr. Texas Sharpshooter. But actually, in actual fact, 
It was just a random cluster. The gunman didn't aim for the target specifically, uh, but it fools people because of the way it's been presented. And it, it, it outlines how people can ignore randomness when determining whether results are meaningful by focusing on similarities and ignoring differences. Now, what is this important? Th this basically bears on the scientific reproducibility crisis, which I've talked about in previous podcasts as well. In the social science, in the social sciences, let's say you you do a survey of thousands of people on hundreds of questions, but you don't predetermine the hypothesis that you're testing. In fact, you're combing for you comb through the the data for correlations, and this is how people can get uh, publications without. Um, being scrupulous, shall we say. Uh, you sort through the data and find, even inevitably, you will find clustering of random answers by the sheer statistics and the number of potential combinations that you have to look at. And you publish your statistically significant result and uh, collect your Nobel Prize and retire. Um, but wait, it's statistically indefensible to do this. This is something when you... you research Bayesian statistics, um, it's it's actually scientific misconduct to do this, and, and people are, are, have been caught up on this. It's very easy to do this. And so now um, people are required to, to put their hypothesis, publish their hypotheses before they analyze the data so that we can tell when the numbers have been fudged in this way. The number, when the number of possible clusters and a large number of independent data points becomes a mess, immense, uh, and the bigger your number of potential correlations, the more certain it is that you'll find some improbable seeming coincidence. I mean, and coincidences are are common. You can you can always find a coincidence. It's a question of can you find the coincidence that you're looking for, and that's where you need to be specific. You know, knowing there's something like eight billion people on Earth right now. It's likely that a random occurrence that it's as unlikely as one in eight billion is going to happen to somebody every day. So you can see how the, the statistics works to fool us if we're not very careful about how we assess the probabilities beforehand. Now, another, another type of uh, cognitive bias is observer bias. And this is also very important in science and when um, doing scientific studies, especially uh, medical studies, observer bias, it's a kind of a systematic uh, discrepancy from the truth, shall we say, uh, use truth in, in scare, scare quotes, um, during the process of observing and recording information for a study. And it's usually tied to confirmation bias, although it could be um, that if you're being uh, overly cautious, that it's the opposite of confirmation bias. But effectively, you are likely to see these patterns that see patterns that you expect to be there, even if they're not. And if you have some feeling about how you want the study to come through, you may apply your confirmation bias when you're looking at the results of the study, and this will then skew the results. And this is something that scientists are taught. You need to avoid ob observer bias. It crops up again and again. Why? And this is why drug tests require double-blind studies. So neither the participants nor the experimenters know who is getting the placebo and who is getting the actual medicine so that their observer bias won't affect the results. This is very important for, for a scientific uh study. 
to avoid uh, contaminating the results. And it's led over in the past to a whole host of fallacies and and irreproducible results. You may have heard the story of Coco the gorilla that knew uh, sign language and could make uh, could communicate through sign language. Well, apparently the gorilla was trained to recognize and express almost one thousand signs. Uh, but there were claims of higher language abilities that were not that were contested by the experts effectively. It turns out that Coco's handler would interpret otherwise meaningful or non-meaningful, nonsensical strings of signs into coherent sentences based on what she thought the gorilla meant. Uh, and this was great for incredulous journalists, but when people looked at the uh, evidence on film and tried to interpret it on their own, it just didn't make sense. So this is a an observer bias, an observer effect. Now, this is not to be confused with observational bias, which is a term we use in astronomy. And it's just meant that if you can't see something with your telescope, it doesn't mean it's not there. Uh, all telescopes, just, just as an aside, all telescopes have a limiting magnitude and objects dimmer than that limiting magnitude can't be seen. So if you're surveying uh, a bunch of stars, for example, uh, you look up at the night sky, the bright stars you see are heavily weighted by super giants that are quite far away. And it's just because they're super bright and you can see them for a long way. If you wanted to take a representative sample of the number of stars per unit volume in the galaxy, which is something astronomers want to do to understand how stars have evolved over time and where we're going, you'll find that the distri distribution, the number distribution of stars is dominated by these dim stars called red dwarfs. Um, um, and they're so dim that you can't actually see any of them with your naked eye from the Earth, but they're the most numerous ones out there. So this is an example of observational bias, which should be separated from observer bias. So thank you so much for listening to this. I hope you learned something. Uh, I hope you can now have a better recognition of your intrinsic biases and uh, read study reports and, and articles, popularizations of science or scientific reports with more skepticism and more appropriate uh, knowledge of the sort of biases that people can exploit. Um, so I'm hoping that I've armed you with something. Live long and prosper. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patron.podbean.com slash the rational view. Thanks for listening.